Well, good morning. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Incarnation. And this is actually a re-recording of the sermon that I preached on Sunday, October 15th, as we continue our way through Sermons on the Way of the Cross, finishing out the last chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Unfortunately, the recording didn't take from Sunday, so we're giving it another go. Well, a couple weeks ago, we did something we have never done before. We held a St. Francis Day animal blessing on the lawn outside our church office at Greenbrier Baptist. And we timed the blessing service to coincide with these school buses that stop at Greenbrier every afternoon so that we could meet the neighbors and bless these pets that we see all the time in the afternoons that are so important in their lives. And we wanted, even for just a moment, to be bearers of God's blessing in that place. And so we prepared, we created a liturgy, we pulled together sidewalk chalk and dog treats and St. Francis coloring sheets, and Josie spread this beautiful table. And then we went outside in our vestments and we just waited And I'll admit, I really thought there was a good chance that nobody would come. And I even told my son that. You probably all know that feeling of pouring yourself into something that then nobody shows up for. You put in all the hard work of thinking and praying and preparing. You spread the table, you prepare the meal, you put out the flowers and light the candles. And then sometimes nobody shows up. It happens a lot in church ministry, but it just happens a lot in life. And today's parable tells a story kind of like that. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. But in this story, despite all the preparations, despite the expensive animals that have been killed and this lavish feast that's waiting on the table, Despite all of the king's generous invitations that have gone out far and wide, nobody shows up to this banquet. And again and again, the king sends out his messengers to remind all of his invited guests, the feast is starting, come on. But again and again, his invitation is ignored and rejected. And so in anger, the king sends his armies out to destroy all those who rejected him and to burn their city. It's this really jarring, really disproportionate response. And to be honest, it also hits a little close to home for us to imagine a burning city in light of this week's news out of Israel. Well, this part of the parable would have made Jesus' hearers really uncomfortable. And it makes us uncomfortable too. In the end, after that city is destroyed, the king sends his messengers out into the streets one last time to just invite everyone, like rip up the VIP list, throw out the list of invitations, just whoever you can grab, get warm bodies into seats, invite everyone. And so in this story, the people at the banquet are the people that you least expect. The riffraff of society, people literally just coming in off the streets, good and bad. But then the parable doesn't end there. Jesus has one more jarring, 
seemingly disproportionate, very uncomfortable detail. The king sees someone at this banquet without proper wedding clothes. And in those days, the host would often provide their guests with proper robes. So it would have taken a real lack of care to not have on a wedding garment. And the king sees this guest who is not wearing a wedding garment and he throws him out and not just back onto the streets, but into outer darkness, it says, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a really tough parable because if this king is supposed to represent God here, then he behaves in ways we really don't want to think about God behaving Is God really so vengeful that he would burn a city down when people refuse his party invitation? Is God really going to kick someone into outer darkness for wearing the wrong clothes to a wedding when it was God that invited him to that wedding in the first place? It all makes us really uncomfortable. And anytime we hear Jesus say something that seems jarring, and out of place, and disproportionate, something that makes us uncomfortable. It's worth not just taking it at face value, but taking it as an invitation from God to go deeper. That's actually what parables are meant to do. Parables are stories that illustrate a main idea, and they use these big, shocking details to do that, to really grab people's attention The details are there to wake us up and to make us take notice. They aren't meant to be decoded, and they don't always symbolize something in a straightforward, one-to-one way. They're there as an invitation to ask questions, to wrestle with God, to be confronted by his word. And we aren't alone in finding them difficult. The disciples were always confused and telling Jesus how they couldn't understand the parables. Well, in the case of this particular parable, I think it's worth mentioning that in the year 70 AD, the Roman Empire sacked the city of Jerusalem and destroyed its temple. It was a world-shattering, history-altering absolutely gutting event for the Jewish people. Devastating. And after it happened, Christians began to look back at many of the things that Jesus had said and discover another layer of meaning in them. They began to remember and reinterpret some of Jesus's words as prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem. And this parable is one of those places. And it certainly helps to have that interpretation to help us make sense of the bizarre action by the king in this parable to destroy an entire city. But that explanation doesn't totally explain this detail away. And it actually risks holding this parable at arm's length for us and fixing its meaning in some past event, back then, over there, with other people, instead of asking what Jesus wants to say to us here, today, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us, and to explore that 
aspect of the parable, we need to take a few steps back in the scripture and get a little more context. So this parable gets told in the final days of Jesus' life. As Matthew tells the story, just the day before, Jesus had ridden through the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey, and he was met with royal psalms, with cut palms, with fanfare and worship from the crowds, like a triumphant king claiming victory. The Jewish people had been waiting for a king like that for so many generations. Someone who would finally overthrow the occupying empire and finally restore the glory of their people. But Jesus' triumphal entry showed he wasn't going to be that kind of king. Jesus rode a humble donkey, not some noble royal steed. He had no conquering army, just this group of itinerant fishermen followers. And the crowds that were praising him were not the wealthy and important. They weren't the world leaders of the day. They were the poor and vulnerable and powerless. It couldn't be clearer that this King Jesus was not here to establish a kingdom by force. And Jesus rode that donkey all the way to the temple where he cleared out all the money changers and the dove sellers. Those were the people who bought and sold inside the temple in ways that exploited the poor. And then Jesus healed all kinds of people in the temple. And all of this together, this king-like procession, the praises of the, the praises of the crowd, the clearing of the temple, the healings, all of this put the religious establishment of that day on high alert. Who did this Jesus think he was? Stirring up the crowds like this? And this religious establishment came to Jesus and demanded to know, who authorized you to do this? And Jesus answered them with a series of three parables. Today's parable This one about the king and the wedding banquet and the burning city and the wedding garment. This parable is the last of these three. All of these parables together are saying in no uncertain terms that the powerful and the comfortable should take watch. The true king is here. The kingdom has come. The old way is toppling and their days of influence are numbered. And of the three, this final parable has the strongest warning of all. It tells the religious leaders a few things. It tells them that God's invitation to his wedding banquet is open to everyone, not just to them, not just to the elite few, and they are not its gatekeepers anymore. It also tells them that God's invitation to his banquet requires a response. It's not enough to just be invited. You have to actually show up and you have to dress for it. We respond to God's invitation with a way of life that conforms to the values of his kingdom. Those values that were just on full display in Jesus's triumphal entry and cleansing of the temple, and healing of people. Values like humility, justice, love, service. 
the values that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, like mercy and peacemaking and blessing our enemies. We put these values on like a wedding garment that marks us as belonging at the banquet. God's invitation comes to us with new clothes, and the king expects us to wear them. And the final thing that this parable told to those religious leaders and that it tells us today, and this is probably the one that is the most unsettling to our ears, It indicates that God will judge those who do not respond to his invitation. The king in this parable destroys a city and casts a wedding guest into outer darkness. That's the language of judgment. And judgment makes most of us deeply uncomfortable. And that discomfort is why the person of Jesus... God in human flesh is always good news for us. Jesus already took the judgment of God on our behalf in his own body when he suffered and died for us. Jesus was already found righteous and vindicated at his resurrection. He has already defeated death and is seated at the right hand of the cross of God. Jesus' wedding garments of righteousness have already been placed on our shoulders. We don't have to make them. We don't have to earn them. But we do have to wear them. We have to receive this new way of life he has given to us and actually live it, just as he taught us. And I think it's also worth remembering that feeling uncomfortable about judgment is a bit of a luxury that comes with our having lives of relative, relative ease and safety. Now, I don't want to pretend that any of our lives is easy or free of suffering in any way. But there are many people in the world who hold on to the promise of God's righteous judgment as a source of comfort and hope. People who are daily mistreated and oppressed without recourse, who are exploited, who live under injustice and unthinkable hardship. Many of Jesus's followers then and now have been people like that. And for them, the promise of judgment is a promise that all things will in the end be set right once and for all. Their invisible lives of faithfulness will finally be seen, and the wrongs perpetuated against them will finally be brought into the light and dealt with by the only one in the universe equipped to dole out perfect justice, God himself. And that is enormously comforting. We can't escape the reality of judgment in this parable. We can't and we don't need to know exactly what it actually means in real life, what the parable's judgment corresponds to in reality. But judgment is there. But we can also trust that God is just and that Jesus has borne our judgment.
Well, I want to end back at the beginning, at the wedding banquet itself, at this thing to which God has invited all of us. This image of a wedding banquet shows up all through scripture, in the prophets and Psalms, in Jesus's teaching, in Paul's letters, in John's revelation. And this wedding banquet is a picture of the culmination of God's work on earth, his making everything new, restoring all creation, ending all sorrow and suffering, opening up heaven's storehouses so that everyone has plenty and finally establishing his kingdom of justice and peace. And it's a wedding banquet because God is marrying his people. He's pledging himself to them in steadfast love once and for all. And he's becoming one with them through his son, Jesus. At this banquet, the rupture between God and humanity will be fully healed. And our union with God will be fully restored so that we can enjoy his presence fully forever. And so I want to read again Isaiah's version of this banquet, which we heard read earlier in the service by Becky. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the covering that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. This is the feast that God has promised to all who hear his invitation and respond. And I don't know about you, but this week I am longing for it. This week, as we've watched events in Gaza with fear and grief and shock, we've watched as the destruction and human casualties just continue to mount, as new horrors of human cruelty are revealed and humanitarian crises that we can't even imagine begin to unfold. In the midst of all this, hoping for some distant wedding feast feels naive and pie in the sky. And that's why I love how our psalm for today, Psalm 23, reminded us, God sets a table in the midst of our enemies. God's wedding feast invades hostile territory. God is bringing the abundance of his kingdom and the fullness of his promises into the midst of our broken humanity. So that even here, we can look toward this wedding banquet with hope. That one day God will feed all hungry people and will dry all tears and remove the shroud of violence we live under and undo death itself. One day God will meet all our brokenness with all his abundance and heal it forever. This is what God is already doing now, and this is where all human history is going 
ultimately. And so we can lament and cry out and pray for this kingdom to come. And until then, we can respond to his invitation by putting on our wedding garments. We can clothe ourselves in the virtues of God's kingdom and work in the power of the Spirit now to make it more real and more visible on earth. So come, Lord Jesus, heal and restore us, remove our shame, be our peace, bring your kingdom, spread your table. We hear your invitation and we want to respond. Amen.